Well, good morning to you all. Good to be with you this morning. Hey, before I jump into Acts, just a couple things. I want to kind of piggyback off from a couple things Heather just mentioned. First of all, um, if you're interested in membership, no, I, I teach that class, and uh, it's a joy for me to do that and just kind of work with you and figuring out how God is leading you. So even if you're like, I don't know if I'm ready to commit to membership, um, I just want to find out more about the church, I would love to have you there. And then secondly, same thing with baptisms. If you would like or are curious about baptism, I would love to personally talk with you about that. In fact, if you sign up, I will personally talk with you about that. But um, I would love to hear your questions if you have any about it. And then lastly, you may have heard some news this week. Uh, our part-time worship director, Justin McKinnon, uh, has uh, graciously accepted an offer to become full-time here uh, starting March 5th. Yeah. He, uh, he will be known uh, from here on out as our worship and impact pastor, and so more information coming on that as things head out, uh, head towards that. He'll be starting full-time March 5th, so give him a high five this, this morning, will you? If you see him, give him a high five. We really love Johnson, yeah. Well, I, I recently finished a book called Luck of the Draw, and it's the memoir of a gentleman named Frank Murphy who uh, spent his time in the 100th Bomber Group during World War II. It's truly a tale of courage and resiliency. Uh, I've read a lot of World War II memoirs. This one is one of a kind. After months of training and preparation, Murphy and his airmen comrades arrived in England in May of 1943. And in the book, uh, Frank Murphy draws upon his memory of the months and years following their arrival in England in 1943. In fact, if, you're, if you have Apple TV, they just released a new series called Masters of the Air, which is also a book on this 100th bomber group. You can kind of actually follow along. He's not really featured in it, but his comrades are. But Murphy flew with his crew as a navigator, so his job was to look at the maps, make sure they were going in the right places. Remember, this is the 1940s. They don't have GPS and stuff like that. They have a guy who's there telling them where to go, right? And he was very good at his job. And he was one of nine other people in the plane. There were two pilots, a bombardier, a radio man, a top turret gunner, two waist gunners, a ball, a ball turret gunner, and a tail gunner. Ten people, one airplane. Now, what made the 100th Bomber Group unique, along with all of the other American bomber groups a part of the 8th Air Force, is that unlike the Royal Air Force, which was part of England, they solely flew their bombing expeditions during the daytime. The Royal Air Force had been bombing German-occupied areas uh, relentlessly for months, years prior to that, but only under the cover of darkness. Equipped well with the incredibly accurate for the time Norden bombsite, the Americans had a strategy for precision bombing. They didn't want to just randomly throw bombs on Germany. They wanted to hit very precise targets. And it was, it was a strategy that they knew only could happen during the day. They had to be able to see what they were actually looking for. Now, as you can imagine... These daytime flights were exponentially more dangerous than having done them at night. They flew through clear skies while anti-aircraft guns shot at them thousands of rounds of flak and were attacked by the air by German fighter pilots. Now, airmen during World War II were required to finish 25 missions before they were relieved of their combat duties. That doesn't seem like a lot, except for 
when you think about the fact that they were flying during daytime at the height of Germany's power. Of the 38 co-pilots that flew with the 100th, only four finished their 25 missions. And 27 of the original 35 planes were lost completely. They earned them the nickname, the Bloody Hundredth. Now, in the end, Murphy himself would be forced to evacuate his plane on a mission over Munster, Germany, his 21st mission, just four short of 25. And after being hit, he and his fellow airmen bailed from the plane, were picked up by German forces, and he would spend the rest of the war as a POW. It didn't take long for an airman in the 100th Bomber Group to realize they had only three destinations in their future. One destination was a prison, the other a hospital, or a coffin. That was basically the lot they had drawn by being a part of this group. How these men were able to wake up each morning, crawl into the metal fuselage of a B-17, is beyond me. It, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for them, they would probably, the, the, the United States and the, the Allied Air the Forces would probably never have stormed the beaches of Normandy. And yet, they continued to do this day after day. They climbed in, they flew in broad daylight, and carried out their mission, come what may. Now, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, because he talks about this throughout the book, but Frank Murphy's response to the question, how did you do it? Which he was asked, he said, so many times. His response was, well, it was the right thing to do. It's what we signed up to do, and we weren't going to let down those with whom we were fighting. Doing the right thing is often difficult. It requires a resolve unlike making any other decision in our lives. It, it tests our determination to its limits, and it forces us to consider our true purpose and our mission in life. And in many cases, like that of Frank Murphy and his friends, it can even threaten our own emotional, mental, and physical well-being. And so as we come to our passage in Acts this morning, we're going to see how one man... Specifically, the Apostle Paul deals with doing the right thing in the face of grave danger. So, grab your phone if you haven't yet. We're going to dive in. Go to the YouVersion Bible app. You can follow along with us there, or we are going to be in Acts chapter 21 today. So, now, last we looked, uh, Paul's final words to the leaders at Miletus and the surrounding areas were filled with grace and challenged to be great leaders in their own right. And he encourages them to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and pursue what we refer to now as servant leadership. And afterwards, he boards the ship and he turns his attention westward toward Jerusalem. It's been his final destination for a while now. He's been gathering funds throughout the areas of Greece and Macedonia and Asia Minor in order to bring some generous gifts to the suffering and persecuted church in Jerusalem. And his eyes have now fixated on that destination alone, which is where we pick it up. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Here we go. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. 
The next day, we reached Rhodes, and then we went to Patara. There, we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, to be fair, this is quite the travel itinerary for Paul and his fellow messengers. So let me just throw a map up here so we all kind of know where Paul is right now, all right? So this southern part, if you go look to the top, it says Miletus, that's where he starts, and he makes his way sort of southwest to Tyre. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre would be just north of Israel today in modern-day Syria. He's traveled a long way, making stops along the way, and when he gets to Tyre, they finally unload the ship. And as you can see, they're sailing their way because Paul has an intention of landing in Tyre and then making his way down south to Jerusalem, where he's wanted to go for many months and years. Verse 4, it says, We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit what Paul should do, uh, that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed, and said our farewells. Then we went aboard, and they returned home. So they get to Tyre, they unload a bunch of cargo, and Paul's first intuition is to look for the local believers. Now, we haven't at this point been told that there's any church or local believers in the city of Tyre, but because of the expansion of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, it's assumed by Paul and his comrades that, that you know what, like there's got to be believers here. And sure enough, there they are. It's interesting when we read the book of Acts, we sort of get highlights of what the church is up to, but it doesn't tell the full story. There's no mention of Tyre getting local believers and a church start. There's no mention of that in the entire book except for here, which is to say that Luke is recording highlights of Paul's journey, but so much is happening around the Roman Empire in the church. Isn't that cool? It wasn't just what we read, but it was all over the place. These are just highlights of what is going on. And so during the week that they're there, Luke records that numerous people prompted, it says, by the Holy Spirit, are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul, a little stubborn he is, but also he knows his mission, and he is not about to stop now, so he carries on. Verse 7, the next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day, we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven men who'd been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. All the way back in Acts chapter 6, which I preached on a decade and a half ago, um, <laughs> Paul, it tells us about there's some trouble amongst the church in Jerusalem and mainly in caring for those who are hungry and who are poor. And so the apostles decide, we can't do all of this. So they appoint these seven men, Philip being one of them, to help distribute food and administrate some of the benevolent needs of the church at the time. Now, he's been at this for years now, Philip has. He's been serving the church faithfully. What's interesting is that in Acts chapter 6, he's only known as Philip. But by Acts 21, he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. It's interesting. God is 
doing something miraculous in the life of Philip. Philip has grown a reputation in Caesarea and the the surrounding areas. He's grown in his faith. He's grown in his leadership to the point where now he's known as Philip the evangelist. He's obviously at work leading people to Jesus. A guy who was once just on the sidelines and decided, I'll help distribute food, is now leading people to Jesus Christ. Don't tell me you can't share your faith with people. Philip has grown. And Luke is making a point to say, look, this is what happens in the kingdom of God. People go from standing on the sidelines to having incredible impact and influence in the kingdom of God. Now, in addition, Paul and his companions get to meet Philip's daughters, which is an interesting antidote that he mentions. And he, Luke, records that they have the gift of prophecy. To be fair, this is a detail that Luke could have easily left out. Like, there's no real reason to include this. He could have just moved on. It doesn't even say that they said something to Paul. It just says they had the gift of prophecy. But clearly, these gifted women had an effect on those who were present. They obviously had an incredible effect on Paul and Luke, enough for Luke to say, you got to know about these women in Caesarea who have the gift of prophecy. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this because women in the first century church were gifted and used by God in powerful and influential ways. And I'm telling you, it, nothing has changed, ladies. And we as a church have a strong belief that the women in our church are still doing the same. Luke intentionally includes that. He's like, you got to know about what God's not just doing in the men, but what he's doing in the women as well. Verse 10, several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, before we miss out on the weirdness, what's going on here? A stranger walks up to Paul and takes off his belt. If someone did that to you today, what might your response be? This is a weird situation, right? Uh, You you might blow the whistle or something, like what's going on here? Uh, But Agabus has a a, a point to all of this. And even though he's a stranger and he does this, this idea of of spending time declaring prophecies and using some sort of visual aid to, to declare it is not totally unusual. We actually see it happen in the Old Testament as well. Uh, Ezekiel, for instance, he uses a brick in Ezekiel 4 that is used to represent Jerusalem. Isaiah walks around naked and preaches in Isaiah 20 to represent what will happen when God's people go into exile. Jeremiah smashes a pot in Jeremiah 19 to represent God's judgment. So Agabus is not doing something out of the ordinary. It's a little out of the ordinary to take his belt off. But otherwise, this idea of him tying himself up as he uses a visual aid to really put an exclamation point on the prophecy that he's been given. That when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's saying he's going to be bound up and imprisoned by the Jewish leaders. And so those who are present are like, Paul, don't do it. 
don't, don't, don't do it. What's interesting, in both cases, in Tyre and in Caesarea, the prophecy about what will happen to Paul in Jerusalem is genuinely a Holy Spirit-given prophecy. The people that are telling him, this is what's going to happen, we don't want you to go, is Holy Spirit-given. The Spirit is obviously giving people a vision of what is to come for Paul, and then he's instructing them to warn him. But the difference here is that while they're interpreting the prophecy as a way of preventing Paul from going to Jerusalem, Paul rightly interprets it as a preparation for going to Jerusalem. And so he responds, verse 13, but he, that is Paul, said, while this weeping, you're breaking my heart, I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, you might be wondering, why would Paul keep on if these prophecies from God's Spirit are telling him what is going to happen when he gets there? I mean, the Spirit keeps telling him, Paul, look, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to get in prison, you're going to get torched. It's not going to be a good situation. It's very dangerous where you're going. Why Paul decides, no, I have to keep going, because Paul knows what the right thing is. He knows, come what may, this is what I'm supposed to do. Sure, he could stay in Tyre or Ptolemais or Caesarea. He'd be safe and he'd be able to do ministry in those cities. He could preach and he could lead people to Christ in Tyre and Caesarea. He could do all of that. But that is not Paul's mission. And he knows it. That is not what the Holy Spirit living inside of him is leading him to do. Now, the Spirit is telling him, be prepared. It's not going to be safe. It's going to be dangerous. Bad things are going to happen to you physically, emotionally, mentally. But he knows, I have to go to Jerusalem. He's known that for years, that he needs to go to Jerusalem because it's the right thing to do. And sometimes I've found, both in Scripture and in life, and Paul is well aware of this as well, he realizes the right thing is not always the safe thing. The right thing is not always the safe thing. We have a placard in our house that hangs on the wall in our kitchen, and it quotes Mr. Beaver as he speaks to Susan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard that story. You've seen the movie, read the book. In the book... Susan is hearing about Aslan, who's sort of the Christ-like figure in this story. And she's hearing about him for the first time, and she becomes nervous because, well, he's a lion, right? And she's told, you're going to meet a lion, which would make us all a little nervous, I think, if we met a lion. And so upon realizing this, she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? It's a valid question anytime you meet a large cat. Is he safe, right? And Mr. Beaver responds this way. This is what's on our, our, uh, in our kitchen. Safe. Who said anything about safe? 
course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, Paul, like Mr. Beaver, it's an odd comparison, but still, Paul knows the depths of Jesus and his mission. He knows it's not always easy. It's not always safe. But it's always worth doing the right thing because it's good. Paul is living out in real time and in real space, space, something that Peter would write in 1 Peter 3. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Like Frank Murphy in the 100th Bomber Group, Paul is crawling in the airplane once again to carry out the mission that God has given him. He knows the dangers. He understands this is not safe. He even knows that he will likely end up in one of three places, in prison, in a hospital, or in a coffin. And yet, he still goes. Why? Because he knows it's the right thing to do. It is the good and right thing thing for him to do. I will be honest with you. I like to be safe. I like safety. I rarely put myself in harm's way, right? Like if somebody came at me right now, I would hide behind my six foot two son. (laughs) He's just taller and bigger than I am. But I like safety. I like knowing, you know, I have enough food in my fridge. I like knowing I have enough clothes in my closet, enough money in my wallet and in my bank account. I like that I can come here on a Sunday morning with y'all and worship Jesus and not even think twice about going to prison for it or getting persecuted for it. I like safety. I do. And we live in a culture that loves safety. I remember when my kids were really little. I'm going off script here, guys. I was little, and um, we had to get a, a car seat. And um, I have never had to fasten something so complicated in my whole life <laughs> than the car. I can't even imagine what they're like now because it was all about safety. It had to be the right level. I mean, my sister was like, you got to take it to the fire department and make sure you put it in right. I was like, I got to do what? Right? Like some of you are like, I remember the days I used to ride in the back window of the car. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying we're obsessed with safety. Are we not? You know, don't I, look, I'll do anything as long as it doesn't affect my comfort level, as long as it doesn't affect my wallet, as long as it doesn't affect the things that I like. I'll do it. Just don't mess with my safety. I'm also keenly aware that my desire for safety will often get in the way of my willingness to do what is right for the kingdom of God. No matter how you divide it or parse it, faith is risky. And following Jesus means risking everything. 
If you're here today and you've never heard this story, I am not going to sugarcoat for you. If you follow Jesus, you might lose everything. If you follow Jesus, your safety will be at risk. If you follow Jesus, your kid's safety will be at risk. But you will be at the center of what it means to be in God's absolute grace, love, and mercy. You will be at the center of what God is doing in the world in and through you and the people of God. And you will be at the center of what it means to do the good and right thing for the good and right king. Ooh, write that down. That was good. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Listen to this. If you try to hang on to your life, if you try to hold safety as the ultimate in this life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. I'm telling you, following Jesus is right and good, but it is not always safe. It will cost you. It should cost you. Paul knows in Acts 21 that it may cost him everything, including his own life when he gets to Jerusalem. But he goes anyway because it's the right and good thing for him to do. Because God has placed him at the center of his mission and said, I need you to go. I know it won't be safe, but I will be with you and I am good. And it is the right thing to do. Not to mention, he, Paul has found something in Jesus that is even more valuable than his own safety. Paul has found forgiveness and new life that will go on forever and ever and ever. And come what may, he is not willing to give that up. And he is willing to risk everything for it. So let me ask you, are you willing to do the good and right thing even if it means letting go of your safety? Are you willing to let go of your own safety for the sake of the kingdom of God? These are hard questions. I am not saying that it's just an easy thing to do, but it is something that we have to come face to face with if we intend to truly carry out the mission of God in our worlds. Is safety so important to us that it is getting in the way of God placing us at the center of his mission that he's called us to. Look, I know, I know the Spirit is revealing something to you right now. I know that he has been asking you to do something for a while, and you know it's the right and good thing to do, but you're afraid because it doesn't seem safe. Maybe it's that hard conversation you have to have. It just doesn't seem safe. It's not comfortable. Or maybe the Spirit is asking you to truly stretch yourself and start giving more generously. 
Maybe the Spirit is nudging you to step out in faith and head in a different direction professionally or educationally. Maybe you're being asked to invite that friend or family member to church, but you're a little afraid. Your safety is getting in the way of having that one conversation, asking that one question to them. So maybe, just maybe, this one time, whatever that thing is that God is revealing to you right now, maybe this one time you choose the good and right thing. And then just see what happens. Watch as God works. Paul's about to face some really difficult times. But you want to know what? It's been 2,000 years, and we're still talking about it. Imagine for a second if Jesus had done the safe thing. Imagine if he had decided, I'm not going to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Imagine if he decided to not allow himself to get arrested. Imagine if he had told the father in the Garden of Gethsemane he wasn't going through with it. Imagine if while being whipped and tortured, he'd thrown in the towel and said, enough, I can't do this. Imagine if while carrying his cross to the top of Golgotha, he'd had enough and just told the people whatever they wanted to hear so it would all stop. Imagine if as he hung from the cross, he really had summoned the angels to come and rescue him. Imagine if he hadn't gone to the very end and breathed his final breath on the cross so that the forgiveness of sins would be true for all people who claim him as Lord and Savior. Imagine if Jesus had chosen the safe thing. Where would we be today? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't take the safe route. And we now have the gift of salvation and new life. We are now called sons and daughters of the living God. We've been given full and eternal access to our creator. We no longer need to live under the weight of our sin and shame, all because Jesus chose what was right and good. Like I said, Paul's arrival in Jerusalem will mark the beginning of the end for him. It's going to get rough for Paul as we head towards the end of the book of Acts. But because of his obedience and willingness to do the right thing, it will also cause a fire to spread throughout the Roman Empire of faith. What is the next right and good thing that God is calling you to do? right now? What risk is he asking you to take? What thing is he saying, I know it's not as safe as you want it to be, but I need you to trust me and do the good and right thing. I will reward you for it, as Peter says. What is that thing? What is that next right thing he's calling you to do? Let's pray. God, I am, you know, writing this message, preparing for it. I recognize that I, I really love my safety, and um, I know that there is work to be done in my life. I know that that's true of all of us in here. 
But Lord, we, we come to you and we, we know that faith is costly. That there is a risk involved. And there's a danger here today of us sitting here and saying, yes, yes. You know, there's a risk to our faith. We need to do the good and right thing and then walking out of these doors and doing nothing about it. There's a, that's, that is the most risky thing that could happen today. And so it's my prayer that even as we leave this place and we go to our homes and our workplaces and our schools and wherever it might be, God, that you would remind us that you're with us and that oftentimes the right thing is not always the safe thing, and that's okay. Give us the courage to do it anyway. Give us the courage to crawl into the airplane one more time. Give us the courage to remind people that I, I'm following Jesus and I know that sometimes it means I have to give up everything. And most of all, we give thank you, thanks for Jesus who, who didn't take the safe route, who went all the way to the end, who knew at the very beginning how the story would end, who had every opportunity along the way to stop it, to end it, to say just the right thing, to make whatever needed to happen to end the pain and the suffering, and yet he didn't. He went all the way to the very end for us. I'm so grateful that he did. I mean, we walk in his footsteps. May we build our lives understanding that he is our creator, that he is our guide, and then when he calls us out of our safety and into the center of what it means to be on mission with him, God, may we have the courage to say yes. It's in his name we pray. Amen.